I think probably one of the worst things that can happen to plastic is that it turns into microplastics, that it biodegrades and then it seeps into into the environment in a in an invasive manner. Once it's a bioparticle, you can't pick it off of the beach any longer. A lot of plastic, especially in developed communities, is sent to a MRF. I think a good safe number would be around 16% of plastic is actually recycled today. This tragic plastic that we discussed about today, the number is used around 12 million tons of that get, makes its way into our waterways and, and oceans at 12 million tons a year. That is a true tragedy. We decided we needed to develop a very, very robust methodology to utilize our construction expertise and convert that plastic into a high-grade synthetic sand, a low-weight aggregate that would bring advanced qualities into concrete and asphalt products. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you businesses that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today we have with us Donald Thompson, founder and CEO CRDC Global, Center for Regenerative Design Collaboration, Building a Better World. He joins us from San Jose, Costa Rica. Welcome, Donald. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a big honor to be on your show. We have this love and hate relationship with plastics. It is important for food and medical safety. It protects products from water damage. Why are plastics so bad for our environment? It's actually hard to imagine a world without plastic now. We've been living with it on a regular basis, probably for my entire lifetime. It's a fundamental part of our society. The problem with plastic is if we don't handle it properly, if we don't deal with it properly, and if it gets into the environment, that kind of plastic we call tragic plastic. Because once it's in the environment, it's hard to get out and it's a tragedy and nobody really takes responsibility. So over the years, it builds and builds and builds until until it becomes a, a crisis. And I think that we've reached that crisis. So we're in a crisis of a, of a product. It's fundamental to who we are as in humanity today, but it's also a crisis, a contamination that, that we need to deal with. So what happens when a product doesn't biodegrade or degenerate? What happens to the plastic? I think probably one of the worst things that can happen to plastic is that it turns into microplastics, that it biodegrades and then it seeps into, into the environment in, a, in an invasive manner. Once it's a bioparticle, you can't pick it off of the beach any longer. Now it's a big problem and years and years to solve. We need to keep plastic out of the environment. We need to keep plastic out of the waterways. And if we can do that, then we can go back to looking at plastic as a useful material within society. And also plastics are made out of petrochemicals. So even in the production part, they are energy hogs and cause a lot of impact on the environment. 
plastics are made out of fossil fuels, and therefore the threat of fossil fuels is obviously a CO2 issue, right? And to make fossil fuel-based plastics, it's CO2 intense. And therefore, you know, there's a lot of work being done these days to see how we can minimize that within the plastic industry, alternatives. But yeah, fossil fuels definitely have the price, um, particularly in climate change. How much plastic, if you had to guess, is produced worldwide? I think that there's about between 410 and 440 million tons of plastic made every year as of this year right now. And how much of that is sent to recycling? And then once it's sent to recycling, how much of it is actually recycled? That's a good question. A lot of plastic, especially in developed communities, is sent to a MRF, a facility to sort out the plastic. I think that the global number right now, I think a good safe number would be around 16% of plastic is actually recycled today. Wow, that's still, if you do the math, it is still about 350 million tons, which is not recycled. Just a quick estimation. And that's a big number. And, and of that number, I think this tragic plastic that we discussed about today, the number is used around 12 million tons of that get, makes its way into our waterways and, and oceans at 12 million tons a year. That is a true tragedy. I can see you. Our listeners cannot see you. You are in a beautiful room in Costa Rica. How did you embark on this journey? I think a kind of an interesting origin story. I'm a developer by trade. I worked at the very highest end of the marketplace in foreign investment development and the very lowest end in social housing. We've always tried to contribute to the needs of the community. And this project actually started as a small tiny little classical music school on the beach that my wife and I started for for the children, the underprivileged children in the community. They simply started to help me pick up plastic because it was affecting my livelihood. This huge amount of plastic that could show up on the beach would, could reduce my property values. So I actually started the project out of necessity, in a sense. And then it just grew and it grew and it grew. And then we decided, probably in around 2012 or so, to dedicate a full-time effort to solving the issue. So what happened to the plastics in those days when you collected? Well, that's what didn't make any sense to us. We put all of this effort and, you know, there's a, we did all kinds of studies. It's about 40,000 pieces of plastic and a ton of plastic. So in order to pick up a ton of plastic, you have to touch your toes in the heat at the beach about 40,000 times. So when you do that and you've actually recovered that plastic, the last thing you wanted to do is get back to the beach, right? You don't want to take it to a local landfill and six months later, God forbid, it's back there again. We decided we needed to develop a very, very robust methodology because this plastic can have crustaceans on it, can have a little seaweed, it can have some sand, it can be sunburned. It has no value in the typical uh, recycling marketplace. So we decided to utilize our construction expertise and convert that plastic into a high-grade synthetic sand, a low-weight aggregate that would bring advanced qualities into concrete and asphalt products. Most of us have probably seen the cement trucks going on the highways, right? So we have cement, and in that, the aggregates, once they mix, is what gives us concrete. Exactly. So concrete is made up of cement, it's made up of water, and it's made up of coarse and fine aggregates. We focused on, and, and on our knowledge of the concrete sector, we didn't want to make coarse aggregate because plastic particles are relatively soft and under compression they would break. But we wanted to make very fine 
particles because those very fine particles act as fillers and they bring certain properties in and they can lightweight our product. So if we can, if that big truck that you see driving down the road can be five or 10% lighter, it can have a way smaller carbon footprint. And therefore we can utilize less steel in the structure, which also brings down our carbon footprint. The rationale to use lightweight aggregates in the construction industry is, is well known. It can have better thermal properties. It can have better insulative properties. All of these things that can add up to build a much more efficient building. And so that's what we were after. We were trying to develop a product that could bring efficiencies into the construction sector, but deal with the real issues, the real problems, the real environmental problems that we found within this in tragic plastic, this stuff that made its way into onto our beaches. So the product that was born is Resin 8. R-E-S-I-N and the number eight. Yeah, so there's 70 types of plastics. Number one is pet plastic, and that's your typical water bottle or pop bottle. Number two would be your Tide bottle or your shampoo bottle. Those two kinds of plastics have a, a good recycling rate and good recyclability and, and a market for them. The threes to sevens, typically, there's some techniques to deal with them, but they're typically seen as waste, as garbage. What would be an example of a three or a four plastic that's not recyclable? Some of the examples that people are often surprised that we can deal with, we deal with the entire spectrum of the ones to sevens, but some of the plastics that people would be surprised that we deal with would be satchels or laminated plastics, kind of potato chip bag, for instance, or a a coffee bag that has a little bit of aluminum in it. We call styrofoam the the white fluffy stuff that everybody seems to have problem dealing with bags that you would put uh, lightweight polyethylene bags that you would put your broccoli in at the grocery store all of that kind of plastic is plastic that's really useful for us pvc is a plastic very hard to utilize but it's actually a very noble plastic for what we utilize it for so essentially what we do and why we call our product resin 8 is we can accept the entire spectrum of the waste stream we chop it all up into tiny little pieces and then turn it into the eighth resin, resin eight. So you can take all seven of the types of plastics, which are represented by the number at the bottom of your containers or your product, and create this useful product, resin eight, which is the eighth resin. It's got a little bit of history. So early on, we were challenged to define our view of the circular economy. So we created a, a project that we call a building, a model that we call REAP. And on one side, the input side, we call it recover and enrich. On the output side, appreciate and prosper. And it was fashioned around the model or the, the infinity sign. So there's seven resins. An eighth resin makes sense. An eight is also very significant in terms of the infinity sign. And it's also the symbol of abundance. So we felt that well, resonate simply resonated for us. And, and you're right, it does have a number of meetings. But that REAP program went on to win the People's Choice Award in Davos in 2016. It's still a, a model that we, we utilize every day. It's kind of our North Star in our company. And it's how we define sort of this hybrid model between inputs and outputs and regenerative design. So have you tested your product? Because, you know, you want don't want your luxury buildings to crumble. And as you stated, durability is one of the important component of um, sustainability. So, yeah, we've tested it globally and extensively. 
How does it compare to concrete blocks? We don't replace all of the sand aggregate. We only replace a small percentage. And so we've learned to test and look at the curve where it actually brings the best benefit. One of our products lines is the raw resonate, which is a can't tell it apart from, let's say, sand that would be made out of lava stone. Looks exactly the same, but one quarter the weight. That product, putting it into things like concrete blocks and pavers and precast products, between five to seven percent can actually make the product stronger. It can make it more impermeable to water. It can make it more fireproof. It can make it slightly lighter. So we look for these improved qualities. We also utilize Resonate in asphalt, and we spent three years testing it in asphalt. It brings better wearability in asphalt, better flexibility. And asphalt is used for roadways and highways. Roadways and highways, and at the end of the life of any one of our concrete products, we can also break it up again and reutilize it all over again. So it's kind of infinitely cyclable and, and circular. What you're saying, the blocks that you make out of concrete, the other coarse aggregates, your resonate can be recycled. Yes. Typically, we do that in our construction industry now. If we have, let's say, we can gather up some blocks that were poorly made or a bad run, we'll break them all up all over again, and then we'll put those back into a new construction product in certain acceptable percentages. So concrete rubble is, if done properly, endlessly circular. Okay, so that reduces, to some extent, the amount of energy consumption and the carbon footprint of the construction industry. Like, I believe 39% of the energy consumed is in the construction industry. It is. About 40% of our global carbon load is due to construction activities. And therefore, the construction industry is legitimately in a major focus on lowering its carbon impact. So these kind of products right now are highly accepted within the construction industry because they have the ability to sequester carbon and or or just keep the carbon footprint down because of their weight, because of their sequestration, because of a number of things. In fact, we have worked now um, with PA Consulting in Cambridge, England for about a year and a half to develop a version of Resonate that actually absorbs CO2 and makes concrete significantly stronger, about 10% stronger. And therefore, we can drop the amount of cement that we put into the product. And when you can drop the amount of cement that you put into a product, you can drop that significantly. You can drop that global carbon content of the industry. So you're saying your product actually captures carbon and sequesters it? It's the newest version of what we do. Yeah, we call it Resonate C. We, um, we coat it with um, minerals. We expose it to flue gas. It captures carbon directly. And then that carbon is imparted into the sequestered into the wet concrete paste and crystallizes in a certain form within that very small amounts, two to 3% only but it makes a concrete considerably stronger. Now that percentage is important to understand. As we mentioned, the concrete industry is one of the biggest industries in the world. The aggregate industry, aggregate is the number one consumed product in the world, only below fresh water. If we took all of the plastic that was made every year, this huge 
quantity of plastic that's plaguing us all, but we converted that into something like resonate and could sequester it into the aggregate market, it would only equate to 2% of the aggregate market. So when you look at the construction industry as a target, symbiotically help the plastic industry, it becomes a very viable approach. It kind of gives everybody hope that we could actually deal with this, this massive amount of plastic that creating this contamination problem. So how does the process work? Where do you get the plastics from, say, for your projects? How do you get buy-in? Buy-in was easy. We have five plants around the world now. We've got online about another 20 that we have to build. Buy-in has been easy. And we get our plastic from a number of sources. We get, um, of course, we started as a little tiny beach cleanup project. So we stay true to that. We are always looking for access to, to beach plastic, to river plastic, to ocean plastic. But that's now become a very small percentage of the plastic we get. A huge amount of plastic comes out of post-industrial sources. The medical system, post medical waste when they're making their products we get a lot of plastic from all over the place when we started the project here in costa rica we we thought okay well it'd be great if we could get 12 tons of plastic a month after we inaugurated we got requests for 80 times that much plastic you know we've been doing this now since 2019 commercially and the very least of our problems is plastic there's a huge amount out there that people are looking to get rid of. We also work directly with children in the schools. We give them, we have a a product we call the bag that builds and we teach them, give them the bag. It started with the United Nations in Samoa, then it moved to Costa Rica. Now it's in York, Pennsylvania and in South Africa. So we give kids two bags a month. They take it home. They tell their parents, hey, if it looks like plastic, put it in that bag. A hundred percent of that plastic is going to go to build our communities. That has just taken off like wildfire. There seemed to be a, a real legitimate thirst within the consumers to do something to help that they could believe in. I think that that was the buy-in was important. And so the alliteration, the name of the program is The Bag That Builds. And I think people simply got that. And the fact that if you assured them that 100% of the plastics that they put in the bags, the kids got their families to put in the bags, would be reused. That would build a lot of confidence because most Americans set their recyclables out on the curb every couple of weeks. And often you're not sure actually what happens to it, right? And I think that that's a legitimate concern because, you know, in reality, the industry is based on what we call recyclable plastics. And then the rest of those plastics, maybe as high as 60% of those plastics become a burden. Those plastics have a cost. You have to pay a tipping fee to take them to a landfill. And, you know, so there is a lot of plastic out there. After you put it in your bin, isn't going to be recycled, can't be recycled today. It's going to go to landfill. And I think people kind of, there's been a lot of press about that. So I think people kind of understand that. But I do believe that people would kind of wish they have this aspiration that, wow, it would be great if we could really do something that provided long-term benefit with this stuff. So the multi-stream plastic recycling that most municipalities have moved towards these days, would you be able to extract the plastics from such facilities? Yes. Or do you need the plastic sorted out before it's set out in the curb? No. We now work with MRFs in, in various places around the world, and they simply give us, or in some cases, pay us to take the plastic that they can't deal with. 
That's a great source of plastic for us. That's secondary plastic. So the MRF is collected out what they'd want. And then we take what typically wouldn't be recycled. So, you know, we, we think we can offer a good service to a MRF. And another utilization of that plastic would be incineration. But more and more industry is, is turning away from incineration of plastic because of the, the carbon load that that represents. Let's talk about York, Pennsylvania. Is your plant set up in York, Pennsylvania, or are you just sourcing the plastic from there? No, we set up our plant in York, Pennsylvania. I'm a Canadian, so I don't know much about American history, but my understanding is York, Pennsylvania was one of the first American communities, and it's kind of famous for starting things first. So I don't think that that was the incentive why we went there, but um, it really can service a number of states. It's an industrial area. There was huge buy-in from the the city itself. And it's been an excellent place for us to work from. So you worked with the municipality or a school or a community organization? The community. The city of York has helped us. They've got involved with our Bag That Builds program. They've built locations for people to drop off the Bag That Builds. The mayor of York has been a hero. He he himself is a bit of an environmental hero. He spends his hobby time cleaning the rivers of York. It's been a great location for us. It's not one of our bigger plants in the world. It's one third of the size of our plant in Costa Rica because the idea in the United States is to roll out in multiple areas versus what we have here in Costa Rica, a very concentrated population. And we have a large plant here in Costa Rica, but we'll be capable soon of doing about 100 tons a day. York is about 30% of that. What was the ultimate goal with the York Pennsylvania Initiative? Our project in the United States is important to us. The United States is one of the world's markets, right? I mean, if we get it right in the United States, we can get it right everywhere. We first went to the United States out of Costa Rica. Even despite COVID, we were able to expand there. And we just ran into an investment group and a group of people that were just focused on on cleaning this up. And then from that, we started to expand around the world. Next one was South Africa, now Australia. So, But the United States, back to the United States, is although the U.S. market and the handling of plastic is relatively good, your recycling rates are really bad. And we were able to run into some really great and big companies that supported us. Georgia Pacific Recycling was the first group that came and supported us. And so then we really believed that we could get the offtake, the kind of the amount of plastic that we needed. We just started to run into the right people. And we also realized that the real solution to plastic, wherever there's plastic and consumers and a construction entity, you could almost have one of our small plants. Rather than thinking about having one or two or three big facilities in the United States, we decided to look at regionalized local facilities. And so York, Pennsylvania is that model. It's that model to say, is it feasible to do the demographics around an area, something similar to York, not a huge city? And can we make this financially feasible? Can we can we really solve the problem? Can we solve the plastic problem in York? And we feel if we could do that, we could replicate that across the United States. So we're now in a pretty serious expansion mode. We'll probably build another five plants in the U.S. in the next year, year and a half. And then we'll build many more after that. When we got involved in this project, it wasn't that we wanted to own one or two recycling facilities and try to make a living in it. We often say we're a purpose-driven company. We took this on to solve this problem. A lot of our energy goes into thinking about how can we scale this effectively around the world? So we look at places like York, Pennsylvania, Samoa, Costa Rica, South Africa, wherever, wherever we can have these different demographics to kind of test and feel the best way forward. 
do you have patent on this product? Yeah, we have a couple. We have um, the original patent was about commingling all different kinds of plastic, looking to commingle them not so much by resin type, but into a bulk density that was suitable for our construction needs. Also, the way to what we call dry cleaning to kill any pathogens that might be on that plastic without having to wash it. The way that the facial structure of the particle itself, so that it mechanically bonds to cement and also chemically bonds to cement. So that'd be the first patent. And then the second pattern is、um, this technique to absorb CO2. And then, like I said, we work in Cambridge, England, to put that together, and that'll be coming out this year. So we have, we're pretty well protected from a patenting perspective, ready to commercialize. You mentioned that your innovation would probably tackle only two percent of the aggregate. By patenting it, you are kind of creating a barrier for other innovators, other entrepreneurs to enter the market. A similar product that we showcased on our show, Rhino Plastic Blocks. They take plastic and mix it with the silica waste that comes out of、uh, castings and make. Very very durable bricks, and their philosophy is that the problem is so large. Who am I to create barriers? So, as against patenting and expanding, what about technology transfers? What about setting up these as projects? And I know you have to make money. You want to sustain your business. How about setting it up for different people? Have the patent for anybody to use. Open it up. Yeah, like free sourcing the patent. As I mentioned, we're we have a very planned, aggressive rollout idea. I've been in the building products industry for a long, long time. One of the very first and most important things that you have to do when you introduce a new product is make sure of the quality control. But you can help them. You can help the person because the problem is so huge. Hundreds of people like you and me trying to help the situation. So essentially, that's what we do. We have what's called a shared equity model. Typically, what we do is we look for either the largest construction entity in an area or the largest waste management in an area. People that are already within the industry, people that have interest, people have distribution. So we're taking a very, very industrial approach at this. So our marketplace isn't just the guy on the corner that would like. To make our kind of product, our marketplace are the building professionals, the waste management industry that can do this at volume, and it's also extremely expensive to do this. We have to be careful, and we do. We put it in people's hands. Essentially, that's what you're saying. We put it in people's hands around the world all day, every day. But we have to be very, very selective. Of whose hands that we put it in. Otherwise, let's say somebody didn't do it right and a building fell down. That that could actually disrupt the entire potential of a solution. So we're extremely careful. Not because we want to be capitalists and hold it to ourselves. It's because we want it to be done right. So we've taken a big business approach to this, and we deal. Typically, only with big businesses, and so it's really not product that we will ever put in the hands of you know some small entrepreneur that would like to have a chance to have a business. Not because we wouldn't want to help that small entrepreneur, but because we actually want this to thrive and grow to the level that it needs to grow to be able to scale to solve this problem. To describe how your product looks, are they in shapes of? Concrete blocks are they in tubes? Can they be made on site, or are they made in the plant? It was designed that anywhere that you can use construction sand, 
you can utilize our product. So it could be poured in place concrete, it could be construction blocks, it could be underground pipes, it could be asphalt on the road, it could be road barriers, it could be an apartment building, it could be a bridge. Anywhere that you can use lightweight aggregate, synthetic aggregate, and meet the engineering specs that would be required, you could use Reddit's Resonate. You had a collaboration with a company called Pedregal. Pedregal is a is a really wonderful example of the kind of company that we would look for. Pedregal is an incredibly good partner. They are a um, a monopoly in essence of concrete products within Costa Rica and other areas of Central America. They um, are a generational company. This new generation is very focused on what they can do with the environment. But their brand, their brand equity, was extremely important to them. So it wasn't like we could just start using the product. We had to do extensive testing for about a year and a half. Pedregal continues to be one of our prime technology partners, helps us around the world. Yeah, it was the right approach. Back to what I was saying before, you find the right partners, you find the partners with distribution. I'll give you an example. Pedregal, on a busy month, will make 4.2 million blocks and pavers. That 4.2 million blocks and pavers and the asphalt work that they do is sufficient to utilize 100 tons of plastic a day. The entire plastic waste stream of Costa Rica, environmental plastic waste stream. So between Pedregal ourselves and the United Nations, the United Nations Development Program, we created a project here in Costa Rica called Landscapes Without Plastic. Hopefully by 2030, Costa Rica will be the first country in the world as an example to the rest of the world how to really deal with the environmental waste stream. So Pedregal has been an incredible partner, but they're also a really great example of the other companies that we look for around the world. And when we do that, we can make a big impact. And it's those big impacts that are going to make the difference. So your philosophy is that I'm going to take on this by this problem, by its horns and go forge forward with and make sure, because very often innovations die. So your approach is that I want to make sure this is successful. I am a purpose-driven company. I will reach out to the businesses who can collaborate and have maximum impact on the solution that you're offering. Exactly. Now, today we work with some very large companies around the world. And our real role isn't just the technology side of the building industry, it's to get them to collaborate, to get them to buy in. And it's going to require big companies, big, big plastic producers, big construction entities to buy in, to participate in solving in this problem. I guess the question is, how do we help the economy? How do we help that guy that's So the construction industry is probably the number one contributor to the economy. We can create a lot of construction jobs by what we do. We can create a lot of factory jobs by what we do. We can provide appreciating assets to family that require them. A successful drive to get rid of this problem and convert it into an asset in the construction side could make a significant change in the world. So we're aware of that and we're very cautious with how we're moving forward, but we're also very aggressive. We are here with a full intent to be not the only player, but a significant player and an example how you can solve this problem. Following up on the question of scaling, what are the challenges in scaling? You're helping people put up these plants, collaborating with big names like Pedregal. What are the challenges? So this is an industrial process. You have to put industrial processes in industrial people's hands, in the hands of industry. This is also 
solving the plastic problem and utilizing machinery to do that is expensive. So we often talk about today, we really have two challenges, the, the two M's we call them, machinery and money. So as an innovator, it's, it's not enough just to be an innovator. You have to be able to have access to the capital markets and you have to be able to have access to the industrial sector in order to pull all of this together to put these things to work at scale and at mass. We've been relatively successful at that, but that's a big area of our dedication now. A big area of, of our focus is how do we model to bring industry to the table and bring the capital required to the table. That's the biggest challenge for any new industry. And we're creating a new industry here. How do you put that together? We've been successful so far and we're, we're planning on taking it all the way, but it's a, it's a big challenge. The innovation part is a challenge in itself, but bringing it to market, you need a business perspective, which you have because you worked in the construction industry the last 30 years. We're definitely taking a business approach. We're now sure we've invested enough time, energy, and money to know that we have a viable alternative. And, and, and that's provided a, a position of, we can also now market off of this position of hope. And people really want to see industry, the common person, specifically children, really want to see a solution. Delivering it is a challenge. And um, we've created a very, uh, we've created a global team and a diverse team. And so we're, we're tackling all those things head on. If you had to guess, since you commercialized in 2019, went into commercial production in 2019, how much plastic have you prevented or has the CRDC prevented from going to the landfill? So when we started, we started really small. And in 2019, we made the decision to work with Habitat for Humanity as our first client. But because of we had to be very careful of margins and costs, we had to dial everything down and be as efficiently as efficient as possible. So working with companies like Habitat for Humanity, we were able to grow over the... So we have now a, a Latin American agreement with them. We've been able to grow over the last four years to a pretty significant rate. So where we started, eight tons a month. Now we're probably in the neighborhood of here in Costa Rica alone, 25 to 30 tons a day. So we're talking about significant amounts of plastic that will go to three shifts now in all of our facilities. It'll be up to 100 tons a day. Our goal is in the next short term, I'm not going to put a date on it, but in a short term, and we're working hard on this, have 20 facilities working around the world. We already have five and 20 facilities doing 20,000 tons of plastic a year. And that will make us a, a major player in the plastic recycling um, industry. Actually, we don't consider ourselves plastic recyclers. We consider ourselves plastic converters, which there's a, a bit of a distinction there. That is amazing. Thank you so much, Donald, for coming on the show. Wishing you all the best on your journey to reconvert plastic. Thank you so much for having me. It was, a, it was a real joy being with you today. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Kurian is our marketing assistant. Kathan Karat is our podcast editor. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pastricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.